and that now God is coming and confronting Adam and Eve with regard to their sin and what they have done and his announcement with regard to it. So let us read from the ninth verse of the third chapter. Let us give our careful attention to God's holy word. And Jehovah God called unto the man and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. Jehovah God said unto the woman, What is this thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. Jehovah God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, cursed art thou above all the cattle, and above every beast of the field, and upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. He shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Unto the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply thy pain and thy conception. In pain thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam, he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In toil shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee. And thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread till thou return unto the ground. For out of it wast thou taken. For dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. And the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Jehovah God made for Adam and for his wife coats of skins, and clothed them. And Jehovah God said, Behold, the man is become as one of us, to know good and evil, now lest he put forth his hand, and take also of the tree of life, and eat and live forever. Therefore Jehovah God sent him forth from the garden of Eden, to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man. And he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden the cherubim and the flame of the sword, which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. May God be pleased to bless this reading and hearing of his most holy and inspired word to each of our hearts. Again, let us ask his blessing upon the ministry of the word. Our Heavenly Father, as we again open thy word, as we again would learn from thee, we pray for the blessing of thy spirit, that he may minister to us that he will cause that which is spoken here this evening to be true to thy word, and that he will then take it and plant it in our hearts, and that we may apply it to our own lives. So bless us in this period of ministry and of study of thy word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We talked this morning about man being made a covenant creature. You remember we talked about the essence of the covenant as seen in Genesis 17, 7, that, that of our being in a personal relationship where God will call himself our God and we are his people. And that, I think, is the essence, as I indicated this morning, of the biblical faith, the essence of the, of the biblical religion itself, is that, that God is God, our God and we are his people. And we talked about the fact that in that original relationship, as man was first created, he was made to be a prophet, a priest, and a king unto God and for his glory. And that God gave him basic ordinances by which he was to live, to subdue the earth. The Sabbath ordinance, the work ordinance, the marriage ordinance, 
and these basic creation ordinances we saw. And we touched but briefly upon the fact that, and we read, I really didn't preach on it or speak about it at all, but the fact that God put man under a special probation in the second chapter, verse 17 or 16 and 17. And Jehovah God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. And here we move into what we speak of as the covenant of works. Man created generally to be a covenant creature, God now puts him under a probation, a probationary period of, pro of testing, to see what he will do with regard to the specific command about a particular tree. And uh, as, as I say, this is spoken of as the covenant of works. Why? Because obedience is the requirement here. Now, Earlier, again this morning, we talked about the idea of a covenant not only being this personal relationship, but it also carrying with it the contractual idea. We talk about covenants between men, contracts. There are parties to the covenant. In this case, the parties to this covenant are God and man. God and Adam, in particular, as the head of the race. But God and all of mankind, as represented by Adam the head of the race and the first person of the race. The condition of the covenant is that of perfect obedience. And the particular command, of course, he is to obey particularly with regard to this tree. If he disobeys, death. There's the threat of the covenant. If he obeys, if he doesn't eat of the tree, and this is by implication, it's not said in so many words, but by implication, if he obeys, Continued life. Continued life in that happy estate in which he was created there in the Garden of Eden. So, as you think about the condition is perfect obedience, the threat for disobedience, death, the uh, promise for obedience, life. The, then we, there's one other thing we find with regard to all the covenants in the scripture is that there was a sign. A sign of the covenant. Uh, when we come later to the Abrahamic covenant, it's circumcision. When we come to the new covenant, it's baptism. And also the other sign of the seal of the covenant in the New Testament is the Lord's Supper. These are signs and seals of the covenant. Here in the Garden of Eden, what would be the signs and the seals? Presumably the trees and perhaps the garden itself. The garden, you see, was the place of God's presence. And that those last verses we just read is that man was barred from coming back to the tree of life. He was barred from coming back into the garden of God's presence by the cherubim. Uh, so that as here's the garden, the paradise, the place of God's presence is as long as Adam obeys, is his, has total freedom to meet God in that garden to talk with him, to be with him, to, to propagate his family, to raise a human race without sin, uh, with all of the, the benefits of being in God's holy presence forevermore, if he would obey. But if he disobeys, then he is brought to a penalty of death. Again, the two trees, the sign of, li of life in the tree of life. And the other tree, the sign of the knowledge of good and evil. Notice that by when we say it's a sign and a seal, somewhat like a sacrament, it's not that that tree itself would have imparted knowledge. But rather, it was a tree, the use of which 
they would receive a knowledge of good and evil either way they used it. Sometimes they, there's a perversion made with regard to that tree and the, and the whole probation period that it really was a good thing for Adam to eat in order that he might experience evil so that he could experience how much better God's grace is. No, that's not the right, the right understanding of it. Had Adam faced that decision and decided, of course I will not disobey God, I will voluntarily choose to obey God because God is God, he would have faced the fact of the temptation to do evil. He would have turned from it. He would have had the knowledge of good and evil in obeying God and not just in disobeying. In other words, some have said the only way he could have come to a knowledge of good and evil is by disobey disobeying. No, I think he would have come to a knowledge of good and evil by facing temptation, being genuinely tempted, looking at the consequences, seeing that it was right to stay with God and to obey God, and he would have had a, a genuine experiential knowledge of good and evil in that way, and then have moved on into eternal life with that choice having been made. Now let's look at that choice even a little bit more. Notice in verse 16 of chapter 2 how gracious God is to Adam in this case. Jehovah God took the man and put him into the garden to dress it and to keep it. And Jehovah God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. Every tree is given to Adam. God could have just as sovereignly as said, Adam, here's your tree. All the rest of them are mine. You may not touch them. This is the one tree I provided for you for food. You get all of your food from this tree. It'll be always sufficient. This is the only tree you're allowed to touch. But God in his gracious providence, you see, in his gracious provision for Adam says, the other way around. Adam, every tree is yours. And there's just one thing that I would, would command of you is that you not eat of this particular tree. Also notice, and this is something I sometimes illustrate, uh, maybe Mr. Combs will even remember on the blackboard, that they are all trees. It's not as though they were all the rest of them bushes. And here's one tall tree that stands out from all the other bushes. And Adam could have said, why, I have experience with bushes. They're good to deal with. But trees I have no experience with. And God says it's different. I better not touch it. No, the only reason that he's not to touch, of that, touch that tree is God's commandment. You see, the kind of test that he's put to is, will Adam obey God because he is God? Or is it something that he can reason out and say, now, I have experience here with these kinds of instruments and things, but this one that's different, looks different, is shaped different. Uh, this one I can't touch and I won't dare touch. God has said I shouldn't, but I can see even by reason that I shouldn't. No, this is to be an unreasoned decision. The only basis on which he is to make this decision is that God is asserting his sovereignty. God is saying, I'm God. And I have commanded you not to eat of this tree. All of the other trees you may have. This one tree I restrict you from eating. And uh, the only thing that, that or the, the whole test is, will Adam obey God because he is God or not? And that becomes the real test. And there you see, I think that the essence of sin comes into this thing. When he, when he does disobey, it is disobedience to God. It's not merely eating of a fruit. It's the disobedience to God when God has commanded and he knows what God has commanded. He uh, still goes on and voluntarily uh, chooses to disobey God 
in that context. Now there's one other thing of interest, I think, before we leave this aspect of it, that God says that, that the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Death in the scripture is, I think, essentially a separation. When we see the body, the soul departs from the body, the person has really departed from that body. We speak of the body as being dead. And the Bible speaks of death in, those, in that language. His spirit departed from him. His soul departed from him. Or when in the cases of resurrections in, in Jesus, the soul returned. You see, then the body's made alive again. So that what we have in, in our, our natures, our, our spiritual nature that resides within the physical body, and that spiritual nature is separable from that physical body. When it's separated, the body is said to be dead. Now the soul, we believe, continues to live on. But the body is dead. Uh, that is a part of the consequence of Adam's sin. It's one of the consequences that we, are, we become subject to physical death. In fact, it's one of the things God announces to Adam that he's made of dust and he shall, unto dust shall he return. The fact of physical death was introduced by Adam's sin. But I would point out to you, and, and Isaiah 59, uh, 2 is even, is, is explicit with regard to this. Let me read 1 and 2. That Adam died just as God said the day that he ate. Not so many hundred years later did he die. But the day that he ate of that tree, he died spiritually. He became separated from God. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2. Behold, Jehovah's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy that he cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you so that he will not hear. The effect of Adam's sin immediately was to separate him from God spiritually. Sin, you see, has that effect. Immediately upon his act of disobedience, his, his determination, his actually taking of that fruit in disobedience to God, that separated, caused a spiritual separation on the part of Adam from God immediately. He was spiritually dead the moment that he did it. He and Eve both became spiritually dead immediately. Now, here are people physically alive but spiritually dead. As long as they remain physically alive and spiritually dead, uh, they are not in their final state. But if they go out of this life, that is, if they die physically, and their souls depart from their, their bodies, and they are still spiritually dead, then they go into eternity in a state of spiritual death. And they enter into eternal death. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 10 uh, verse 28 speaks about this matter. Be not afraid of them that kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And there is a strong word. Jesus uses the word Gehenna here. In hell, in Gehenna, the place of burning. And there he's speaking, you see, it's, there is the different kind of, of death. This is the eternal death. He would be fear him that is able to destroy both soul and body in Gehenna, in hell, forever. There's your eternal death. 
And Jesus describes it elsewhere, you remember, as a place of weeping and wailing, of gnashing of teeth, a place of self-conscious torment for those who are cast into hell. And so there is in the Bible then this concept of a spiritual death. If you are here tonight, for example, without the Lord Jesus Christ, you are a sinner. And Paul in Ephesians speaks of the fact that that all sinners outside of Christ in the second chapter of Ephesians speaks of, of the fact that all sinners outside of Christ are dead in trespasses and in sins. You did he make alive, speaking to Christians here, you did he make alive when ye were dead through your trespasses and sins. So if there are some of you here tonight without Christ who've never made profession of faith, your faith in the Lord Jesus, don't know the Lord Jesus as your Savior, your spiritual state is that of death. You're already dead. It's going to take a rebirth to bring you into life. This is why the necessity of the rebirth. You are spiritually dead. And it will take a rebirth. And by the way, that's something that you can't do in your, of your own strength. That's something only God can do. It's only God who can make alive. It's only God who can give you the rebirth. And so this is why Jesus says you must be born again, except a man be born again. He cannot see the kingdom of God. All men are born sinners. As David said, in sin did my mother conceive me. He's not saying that the act of conception was sinful, but rather in a sinful nature. She was a sinner, my father was a sinner, and I have been conceived as a sinner in a, with a sinful nature. And uh, this is something we need to recognize that is the fact about all of us. Ever since Adam sinned, We've all been born with sinful natures, with the one exception of the one person who was not born by ordinary generation, namely the Lord Jesus. This is why the virgin birth is so, so vital in our theology. Jesus not born through the ordinary conception, the ordinary means of conception, but rather by a direct intervention of God, he was protected from this passed down sinful nature that we have received from our first parents. And we, with that sinful nature, also have inherited the dead state of being dead in trespasses and in sins until we are made alive again by God in Christ Jesus. And so we see then the fact that Adam's, uh, the probation with regard to Adam was one in which he was commanded to obey the threat of death. And then we know the account of it. Well, we won't take time to deal with that at any, any length at all, but we know the account of Satan coming and tempting and, and suggesting and appealing. It's interesting, isn't it? He appeals to the woman. Now, as you study that account in the second chapter, God had spoken the words to Adam. He had not spoken them directly to the woman. The woman was created later, apparently, according to this account. But God had spoken the words to Adam, and so Satan, knowing this, she, she knew the truth about it. She t indicates she knows the truth about it when Satan begins the temptation that she's not to touch the tree, not to eat of the tree, not even to touch it, she says. Uh, so uh, she, she knew about it. Adam had conveyed it to her. But Satan uses that fact that she, in a, in a sense, has heard it secondhand as his first approach. Now, presumably, Adam's standing right beside her all alone. Why he doesn't intervene? Why he didn't stop and say, now you talk to me, don't talk to her? Why he didn't stop her from, from uh, reaching forth and taking the fruit? Uh, these are things, all the things, that there are mysteries to us. But Adam does, as God says, hearken to his wife in this. And does Paul, allows her to lead him into this. 
And Satan uses her uh, at, at that point to bring the fall of the whole of the human race uh, as he draws her into the temptation and then Adam follows with her. But now let's move on to the curse and the first announcement of the gospel. Adam and Eve then, with regard to the covenant of works, were placed under a covenant in which they were supposed to obey. They failed. And they became false prophets and false priests and false kings under God. And we all are in that same situation ever since that time, except by the grace of God through the gospel of Christ. Now, God, in dealing with, with man in this area, uh, deals with each one. He deals with the serpent and he curses him in his nature. That whereas, and I'm not sure that he did not already go upon his belly. Some of our forefathers have suggested the serpents perhaps had legs and so forth. I'm not sure he didn't already go upon his belly, but rather now it becomes odious to him. He must eat the dust, as it were. Look at the other two aspects of the curse with regard to the woman. What is that is that, that is her curse? Unto the woman I will greatly multiply thy pain and thy conception. In pain thou shalt bring forth children. You see, it isn't the change of her nature so much. She was made woman with the purpose of bringing forth children. It isn't that childbirth is part of, of, the, of the curse. It's the pain that's added to the childbirth now. And so he curses her in her very nature. That for which she had been created. To be able to bear children. She's been cursed in that area, and now it is only with pain that she is able to do so. But, now notice one of the things, and this is, there's a double stream that runs all the way through the scripture from here on out. Where there is curse, there is also mercy. Oh, and and uh, so frequently, where there's grace, there's also the threat of, of punishment. And so in this case, here is the curse. The woman is cursed in that she now in pain will bear children. But the grace and mercy there is she'll bear children. It isn't that she's cut off, you see, from bearing children. She will continue to be able to bear children, but now it be, will be through a painful process. So also with the man. We pointed out earlier this morning the fact that man was given the task of keeping the garden. He was given labor to do even before he was given his wife. Now in that for which it was made, Namely, that he was to serve the Lord as an agent, serving him in work. That is the very thing which now becomes odious to him, becomes difficult to him, becomes tedious, becomes a sorrow to him. So he's cursed also in his nature. But the, notice the mercy. What is it? He shall eat bread. Though through the sweat of his brow, he shall eat bread. He shall be able to produce. He is not cut off entirely. The ground is cursed for his sake. And he will have to go through thorns and thistles to get his bread. But he shall be able to get his bread. And so God, on the one hand, curses, but on the one hand, on the other hand, extends mercy in both of those aspects of the curse as well. And, but now let's come back to the serpent. There is no mercy to the serpent in verses 14 and 15. The serpent is cursed. And of course, we know that who the serpent is, that old serpent, the devil. He's used a physical serpent to, as the agent. But uh, the fact is that it is the devil, and there is no mercy extended to the devil at all any place in Scripture. And uh, in, in the, on the one hand, that's the case. But there is mercy extended or spoken to the serpent in verse 15. I will put enmity between thee, that is the serpent, and the woman, between thy seed and her seed, 
and he shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Now, I would, now, I would suggest that this, the proper title for this verse in t- talking about the covenants is that this is the covenant of grace announced. This is the announcement of the gospel of, of the Lord Jesus. It's the first preaching of the gospel. Who is the author of it? Who's doing it? God. Get the scene, if you will. God is speaking to whom at this point? The serpent. Adam and Eve are there as bystanders, listening in to what God says to the serpent. Now, that I think itself is is of great significance to us because this indicates something of the character of this gospel. God didn't say to Adam, Adam, you can do such and such and you'll be able to to uh, restore yourself. God says in Adam's presence what he's going to do. And all Adam can do is believe it. You see, justification by faith alone is the principle that's active right here. Adam is not addressed and told he must do something in order to to receive this benefit. God is saying, I'm going to do something. And the expectation about Adam is that he will believe what God has said at this point. That's all he's asked to do. Now, let's see what God will do. I will put enmity. Notice again with regard to this. And I think this emphasizes the thing that we Presbyterians are particularly noted for, the absolute sovereignty of God's work in this matter. It's not something that we do at all. It's something that God does. The whole plan of salvation is something that God has done through the Lord Jesus Christ. I will do this thing. I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. Now, the context of this, you see, is just this. Adam and Eve have moved out from God's camp over into the enemy camp. They have voluntarily chosen to go with Satan. Because here was the situation. When they were faced with the temptation, God had said, here's the truth. If you eat, you'll die. Satan had said, no, God's a liar. Here is the truth. If you'll eat, you'll become God. And Adam and Eve were faced with the choice. They actually were not neutral. They were not in, in between. And this is a striking thing to think about. They were over on God's side. They had been made. They were good. They were inclined to that which was good. They were not sinful by nature. They were inclined to that which was good. And somehow, in that temptation, they saw this as something that was a, was, they thought was better. The appeal to their pride. And it's one of those mysteries, again, that we have no answer for. How can a good creature who is inclined to that which is good and standing in right relationship with God want to step across that line over into the enemy camp. It's a mystery we don't know. We cannot understand. One consolation is that sin did not have its origin in our first parents. It had its origin in Satan. That puts it beyond us. Again, I'm not sure that that uh, answers the question. How could Satan, who was also good it was in the, as the, the angel, you remember, uh, Lucifer is the name sometimes given to him, how could he have done this thing? We don't know, but at least it's beyond our realm. And uh, it's something that we don't, don't fully understand. But there they were, good, in God's camp. And they choose voluntarily to move over to the enemy camp. They have made a, an alliance, a friendship with Satan. What's God saying I'm going to do? I'm going to cut that off. I'm going to put enmity between you and, and the woman. You have an alliance, an unholy alliance over here now. And God says I'm going to break up that alliance. That's what his promise is. I'm going to put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. And there we see 
the, the covenantal, the, the family relationship involved. Adam and Eve have acted in our behalf as our first parents. Adam, as our federal head, has committed this sin and thrown his whole race into sin. It will come through the seed of the woman. And this is a quite a striking thing to think about. It's the seed of the woman who shall be the one who shall break the bond uh, that Adam and Eve have made with Satan and gain the victory. And so you find then that it is the seed of the woman alone, not the seed of man and woman, but the seed of the woman. And that's suggestive of the virgin birth. I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed, her seed, and her seed, he... And I think the American Standard at this point, I don't know what your new American Standard does at this point, but this is better than the King James. He, it's personal, he shall bruise thy head, and thou shall bruise his heel. In other words, he shall have to suffer. But notice what the, the difference is. The bruising of the heel of this seed of the woman, it's going to be an infliction of a wound upon him, but it's not a fatal wound. But by his, his uh, deed of being bruised, He's going to inflict a fatal wound upon Satan, upon the serpent. It's a head wound to the serpent. It's only a heel wound to the Lord Jesus, who is this seed of the woman. Now, there's a very interesting commentary on this passage uh, in the last book of the Bible, in the book of Revelation. We won't have time to really get into this more than just to suggest that this is, is taking this very figure of Genesis 3.15 and dealing with it. Gen uh, Revelation 12. The great sign was seen in heaven, verse 1 of Revelation 12. A woman arrayed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. And she was with child. And she crieth out, travailing in birth and in pain to be delivered. And there was seen another sign in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon. Well, now, who is the woman? It may be a particular reference to Mary, the virgin. I'm inclined to think it's also to the church. Uh, it may have a personal reference, and it's a generic sort of a prophecy at this point, or a statement, that was true about a single individual woman, but it's the church, you see, God's people, through whom this woman was part of, uh, and, and through whom the Messiah comes. And who is the dragon? Of course, that's the, that's the, the devil. There was seen another sign in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns upon his heads, seven diadems. And his tail draweth a third part of the stars of heaven, and did cast them to, down to the earth. And the dragon standeth before the woman that is about to be delivered, that when she is delivered he may devour her child. And she was delivered of a son, a man-child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. That's the Messiah, you see. And her child was cut up unto God and unto his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness. And there, you see, it's not just Mary now. It's, it's apparently the church. The woman fled into the wilderness where she hath a place prepared of God that there they may nourish her two thousand hundred and threescore days. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels going forth to war with the dragon and the dragon warred and his angels. And they, and they prevailed not. Neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast down, the old serpent, he that is called the devil and Satan and the deceiver of the whole world. Now, there, here you see the clear indication of the New Testament saying, who is the serpent of, of the Genesis account? Satan, the devil, the old serpent. I think this is a clear identification of the serpent for us here by the New Testament commentary here. The deceiver of the whole world. 
He was cast down to the earth, and his angels were cast down with him. And I heard a great voice in heaven saying, uh, Now, let me stop before reading this. To indicate, I'm not sure that I can explain all the details of this Revelation 12 passage, but I think essentially this. The enmity that God spoke of in Genesis 3.15 is here being talked about. What is this enmity? It's an enmity against, uh, between Satan and the Christ. And it is an enmity that culminates in this war, warfare, and that warfare has been going on ever since the Garden of Eden. You wonder why life is such a conflict for you, even as a Christian? It's because Satan is alive, because Satan is still battling, because Satan is still tempting you to resist, resist God and his, his uh, desires for you. And you are, we are all caught up in the midst of this conflict uh, as Satan wars over us with, with Christ. But notice now the, the great note here, and this is the note that's, that's sounded in Genesis 3.15, that the, serp, the seed of the woman shall bruise the head of the serpent, he shall gain the victory. Now is come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, who accuseth them before our God day and night. And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they loved not their life even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and ye that dwell in them, woe for the earth and for the sea, because the devil has gone down into you, having great wrath, knowing that he hath but a short time. But hear the note of victory, the note of victory that is seen particularly in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ and in his resurrection. You see, that's the guarantee of God's victory over sin. God has conquered death. He's conquered Satan. He's conquered sin. He's conquered the grave and hell for us through the Lord Jesus. And so the writer to the book of Revelation of the book of Revelation can can rejoice and tell us about the great hymns of praise for the victory of God in Christ Jesus. And we who know the Lord Jesus already know that victory over sin in our own lives. Paul spoke of it in the same sort of tones in 1 Corinthians 15 as he ends that great passage in verses 54, the end of verse 54 and, and following. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy victory? O death, where is thy sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And he's speaking, of course, of that great momentous day when the Lord Jesus shall return. But the victory has already been accomplished. Jesus has accomplished the victory. He's already bruised the head of the, of the serpent by being bruised as he died upon the cross. But though he died... It was not a final death for him, but rather he conquered death by coming forth from the grave with a great shout and a great note of victory. He returned to his father and is now seated at the right hand of God the Father, the victorious king. And that note is sounded here in the book of Genesis then, in the third chapter, in the 15th verse, that the seed of the woman shall conquer the serpent. And we have now, as the much fuller record of the New Testament tells us, how he did it. We have that full record before us. And again, I would make the plea that if any of you here are without the Lord Jesus, 
are still in your sins, still in that state of spiritual death, don't go out of this place without making your peace with God. Know that if you should die physically in that state of spiritual death, you enter into a final place of eternal torment, eternal death forevermore, eternal separation from God in a place of outer darkness where there's nothing but weeping and gnashing of teeth. Know that that's the case for every sinner who is outside of Christ. If he goes out of this life without Christ, he's without hope forevermore. You know there's not one good reason that any of you could give me why you would not embrace the Lord Jesus and his victory already accomplished. It's in terms all only of believing, repenting of your sins, turning from your sins and turning to God in Christ, receiving him by faith alone, and putting your trust in him, just as all that Adam had to do that day was to believe the promise of God. And you ask, did they believe? I think they did. Look at the name of that first son, Cain. He says, I've gotten a man. They thought this was the seed. They were believing the promise when they named Cain that. And then when Cain, of course, kills Abel and they have to look at the next son that is born, they called him substitute. They recognize that's Cain or Abel. They were not the seed. So the next son that's born is the substitute. And so they were looking forward. They named their children in faith, believing the promise that their seed of the woman was going to conquer the serpent and gain them the victory. Yes, I think Adam and Eve both believed. And I believe that that, that is the case. But all that you're required to do as a sinner now is to put your trust in the Lord Jesus, turn from your sins and to cast yourself upon him and his mercy, and you shall have the benefit of, these, of this great victory. For those of us who do know him, May we rejoice afresh in the great victory that God has earned in Christ Jesus. And may we commit ourselves afresh even now to renewed determination to live our lives to his glory. Let us pray. We thank thee and praise thee, our Heavenly Father, for the good news of the gospel that thou didst announce to Adam and Eve, even as thou didst promise the victory over the serpent in the Garden of Eden. And as we've read the account of that victory and the glorious hymn of praise in the book of Revelation, we thank thee for Jesus and his saving work that thou hast given us the victory in Christ Jesus our Lord. And we pray again for any who may not yet know the Lord Jesus, that thou wilt, even through the preaching of the gospel here this evening, attract them to him, cause them to want his salvation, change their hearts, enable them to believe in the Lord Jesus, that they may come even now to a commitment to turn from their sinful ways and to turn to Jesus and to receive the full free gift of everlasting life through him. And for the rest of us, O oh God, refresh our hearts with the good news of the gospel and cause us to recognize again that it is all of grace, it's all of thy work, and therefore our lives should be lived in obedience to thee as a response, not to earn salvation, but because we love thee and because we found this free gift because thou hast been so gracious to us, we would now want to serve thee with everything that we are in all of our being. So bless to us this preaching of the gospel. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. 
our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.